Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 14 through 20 here in just a moment. There's an organization called the Joshua Project, which is a research initiative started in 1995 to research the number of ethnic groups throughout the world who are unreached. You've heard that term maybe a couple times already this morning. An unreached people group is simply a group that uh, has no access to the gospel because they're are not only no Christians in their communities or nations, but there's not even any scriptures translated into their languages, no, not even portions of scripture that would allow them to learn about the gospel. So the Joshua Project researches to see how many of these unreached people groups there are. And on their website, they have provided this um, diagram that um, explains how many unreached people groups there are in the world. If you look at the kind of greenish portion there at the bottom, you'll notice that this is called established or significant, almost 41%. That means that in about 41% of the world there is an established Christian evangelical presence of some sort. Now, it doesn't mean that these are Christian nations. It just means that there is a significant amount of Christians there or Bible portions available. And in some cases, it can be low as about a 5% presence. But even with a 5% presence of evangelicals, according to the Joshua Project, that's still considered a significant presence. In the yellow part here, we have formative or nominal, 17%. That's where we have some presence of uh, evangelicals or Bible portions. Um, So uh, this is considered to be between about 2 and 5% of the population perhaps would be evangelicals living among those people groups. That is the case in about 17% of the world. The reddish, brickish kind of color here at the top is the unreached portion of the world. These are the people groups throughout the world for whom there is basically no Christian presence whatsoever, no evangelicals living there, no churches. And in addition to that, there are no Bible portions available. By portions, I just mean it's not only that they don't have whole Bibles, they don't have any of the Bible in access to them. And according to the Joshua Project, that represents about 42% of the entire world that have no access to the gospel. Now, if we do the math here, um, it's pretty much widely known that there are about 7 billion people in the world. 42% of 7 billion comes out to be about 3 billion people. I didn't say million. That's billion with a B. About 3 billion people who not only have not heard the gospel, but don't have any access to hear the gospel. There doesn't seem to be anything in their immediate future anyway that would indicate that they would be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
about three billion people. Now, you know, maybe we can quibble with that number. I have heard some people say it might be more like two billion. Uh, but I hope that doesn't alleviate the concern that you might be experiencing here. Anyway, we slice this. There are several times more people than live in the United States of America throughout the world who've never heard the gospel. All the people in the United States multiplied several times over. And that's how many people there are who, at this moment, are on their way to hell. Now, any concerned Christian ought to hear that and shudder, if not weep. That's, that's the situation before us as the church. That's why we think it's important to have mission conferences like the one we're having here today to raise the awareness of the urgency of getting the gospel to the rest of the world. Now, you might be saying, what, why is it that you're so alarmed by that? I mean, these people are just going to do the best they can. They're going to follow their religions. I'm sure there's a lot of good people among those people groups. Certainly God's going to say, hey, you did the best you could, so I'll let you into heaven. I mean, that's the most common way to think about this among people in our culture. But we don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. What the Bible says is that people are born into this world estranged from God, separated from God. They're born into this world with hearts that are naturally opposed to Him and defiant against Him and rebellious against Him. And people live in that rebellion and therefore are under God's condemnation and anger that there is the wrath of God that has been revealed against all mankind because of our sin. People born into this world apart from Christ are still under that condemnation. And yet, God in His mercy and His grace has made a way for that situation to be changed. He has done something about this. In His love and in His mercy, He has entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He has lived an obedient life. He has gone to a cross and shed His blood to pay for sins. And He has resurrected from the dead to show His power and authority over death, the devil, and sin and now sends the church into the world to simply proclaim that message so that there are people who would hear, believe, and be saved. And that is the task we have as a church, to proclaim that message. That is the only hope for unreached people in this world, that the gospel would be proclaimed to them and that they would believe and be saved. Now, some of you might be saying that that just sounds really narrow. How is it that you can say that there's only one way to be reconciled to God? I would just respond by saying, better one way than no way. I mean, God could have just provided no way for people to be reconciled to Him, but He has provided one way, and it is a wonderful way. It is a glorious way. It is a way in which free access to God is being offered to anyone who would simply turn from sin and trust in Jesus. It's not a way that says, oh, you've got to be a certain nationality, or you have to pray five times a day, or you have to fulfill all these rules and regulations. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, I have come into the world, and I have done it myself in Jesus. I have lived for sinners and died for sinners and resurrected for sinners, and now I'm calling on sinners to turn and trust 
in my son. That, that's the message. It's a free and easy message. It's easy to be saved. But it's hard to be saved if you never hear that message. And there's a lot of people in the world who haven't heard it. And that's why Paul says this, Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's that easy. But then he goes on, he says, but, but how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they going to call on Jesus when they haven't believed in him? And then how are they going to believe in him if they've never heard of him? How is it possible for someone to believe in a Jesus they've never heard of? And then how are they going to hear unless someone is sent to go and preach him? And it's a rhetorical question. What Paul is saying is that they can't hear and believe unless somebody is sent. And then lastly, how are they to preach unless they are sent? How can people believe in the gospel unless there are people willing to go and people willing to send? Those are the two categories that we're going to be thinking about here this morning. The proper way for us as Christians to respond to this is to realize that there are two ways that we can respond. We can go or we can send. Those are the only two options. You can go, as Zach and Katie indicated, that they are ready to go, or you can send. So, I mean, there's, there's grace in that too. I mean, sometimes people don't want to become Christians because they're afraid they're going to have to go to some unreached land and they don't want to do that. Well, it could be that God's not calling you to do that. God doesn't call most of us to do that. But if you're not called to go, you are called to send. And what we see here in the scriptures is that there is a partnership, a partnership between those who go and those who send. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. How does that partnership work. <clears throat> Finally, we get here to the book of Philippians, and Paul, as he writes this book of Philippians, speaks of this partnership. And in fact, the book begins, here's an early passage in Philippians chapter 1. Paul begins, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, speaking to the church in Philippi, always in every prayer of, of mine <clears throat> for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul introduces this idea of partnership, and as we get to chapter 4 and verses 14 through 20, we'll see him mention this again. And we're going to read this passage because I think it gives us some instruction about how this partnership should work between those who go and those who send. So please stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians 4, verses 14 through 20. Philippians 4, verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. God, would you please send your spirit to soften hearts, open our eyes, and equip this preacher to honor you and your word as it goes forth now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a partnership. A partnership between those who go and those who send. And so those are our two points here this morning. Partnering to reach the world with the gospel. There are two ways to do this. The first is that there are partners who go. And it's pretty clear in this passage that Paul is one who went. Paul went. Paul was a missionary. He was basically a missionary church planter. Everywhere he went, he planted churches. He established elders in every city. And so Paul, here the missionary, is writing back to this church in the city of Philippi that he has planted himself and has gone on now to to other places. But you might know about Paul's life. He engaged on three different missionary journeys that are detailed for us in the book of Acts. And during his second missionary journey, I actually have a map here to show you uh, something about these missionary journeys. I'm not sure how well you can read that, but um, right down here is Jerusalem, which is the place from which Paul was sent. Again, this is his second missionary journey. He, he went on three in particular. Uh, Paul went up to a city called Antioch. He went over here to Tarsus, Derbe, Iconium, Antioch. Again, the stories of all of these cities are in the book of Acts. I think these are like chapter 13, 14, describing what Paul did. And then uh, Paul gets over here to Troas and comes uh, across the Aegean Sea to Philippi. Do you see that? Philippi. And after he planted this church in Philippi, then he went over to this city called Thessalonica and uh, met with Christians there and planted a church there. So if you look at the passage in Philippians 4, verse 15... It says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia. Now, do you see up here, Macedonia is the region in which Philippi resides. So that's what Paul is talking about. He said, when I left Macedonia, when I left left Philippi. And he says, and... uh, Uh, He says, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul gets to Thessalonica, and the church here in Philippi provides for his needs, sends him help. But do you notice what it says here? It's very interesting in verse 15. Apparently, no other church, no other church entered into partnership with Paul other than Philippi. Paul's planting churches in all these cities along the way. He gets to Philippi, he plants a church there, he goes along to Thessalonica, and of all these churches, just this little church in Philippi joins with him, partners with him in the gospel. Isn't that remarkable? And Paul, you can see, is just so grateful for this that he makes sure that he thanks them personally for the ways that they have supported him. But as you see, what's happening here is that for Paul to be able to do this work, to fulfill what he had been commissioned and set apart to do, he needed other churches to get behind him and support him in this work. Because it always takes at least two parties to make this happen. 
If missionaries just go off by themselves with no support, it's not going to work. If in our churches at home, we want to support but nobody will go, it won't work either. We have to have these two parties working in partnership. This is illustrated very well by a famous missionary named William Carey. He's considered to be the father of modern missions. And in 1793, William Carey felt a call to go to India to take the gospel to India. And there was a service set aside to commission him and set him off for this missionary travel. And there was somebody there at the commissioning service who said to William Carey, he said this, he said, William, there is a gold mine in India as deep as the center of the earth. There, there's just so many people there longing to hear the gospel. And William Carey said in response, I'll venture down, but you have to hold the ropes. I'll, I'll go. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go into the center of the earth. I'm willing to go wherever God calls me to go to take the gospel. But i got to have somebody back home holding the ropes, supporting me, caring for me, encouraging me. And that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4. The church in Philippi has partnered with him, supported him. Even though no other church did, this church was there for Paul in support. Now, there are missionaries with whom we, as a local congregation, are in partnership. And Brian just prayed for them, and I'm going to list them here for you on the screen so you can get pictures of these people. These are people who have gone. They've gone into the world. They've sensed God's call, and they have left family and friends and comfortable surroundings and their comfortable culture. And we are in partnership with them. Terry and Francine Clark in Australia. Terry is a professor of a uh, seminary there training pastors. Zach and Katie King, you just heard from them, based in England, but um, looking to move out into the continent of Europe. Here's Michael and Tricia Lee in Panama. They were in Mexico, but they have changed locations in Panama. Uh, Eric and Lauren Ogle. Not all of these actually have been members of this church. Eric and uh, Lauren Ogle uh, were members of this church, and they are in East Asia. Uh, the DeHarts in the Asian Crescent, um, their specific location, they prefer to be undisclosed, but it's in the area of the world there around the nation of India. That's the Asian Crescent. Uh, the Files who are in Japan, planning a church in, uh, in Tokyo. And Austin and Jeannie Thompson, uh, also in East Asia. Uh, those are the missionaries with whom we are in partnership. They're the ones who have gone. And I know from my own conversations with these people, I know that what motivates them the most, that what they want to see happen, is the gospel to go forth in all the world. That's their passion. Because I, I'm wondering if some of you might be thinking, well, you know, should we support these people, these people who go into the world? I mean, I don't really know what they're going to do. I, I don't know what they're going to do with the money that I give to them. And I mean, what actually are they trying to do? You know, there's some people suspicious of missions because they think American missionaries in particular are, are just simply going to try to, you know, set up democracies in the rest of the world or just trying to 
turn the world into, you know, a little America, or to just try to pass a bunch of laws that force people to act in a way different than they want, that we're just trying to empire build here, that that's what this is all about. But I want you to know that's not what this is about. These missionaries are sending out, they're going because they want to see people transformed. They want to see the lost saved. They want to see the kingdom building. They want to see the unreached lost. And you see this here in Paul, that Paul doesn't have any kind of self-interest really here in his missionary endeavors. Look at verse 17. He says, in response to the gift that the Philippian church has provided for him, he says, he says not that I seek the gift... I mean, you know, I need the gift to do this, but that's not really what I'm most interested in. What I seek, he says, is the fruit that increases to your credit. What I'm interested in is the fruit that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God when the gospel goes forth. That's what's thrilling Paul's heart more than anything. Not the money that he's getting. It's the spiritual advancements that are being made. And I can say that, again, for these people. What they want to see is the gospel growing. What they want to see is every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What they have in their minds is a vision of the last day when Jesus comes again and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation will be gathered around the Lamb who was slain and proclaim to Him that all wisdom and honor and glory and blessing belong to Him. That's what's going to happen one day. That's, what's going to, that's one of the things that makes this so exciting. There is zero chance that the missionary efforts of the church of Jesus Christ will fail. Zero chance. The victory is guaranteed. We're told in the Bible what it's going to look like. We just don't know how long it's going to take us to get there. That's the only thing we don't know. But success is guaranteed, and these missionaries who are going and with whom we are in partnership believe that, and that's what's driving them. So let me offer a challenge to you as we think about those who go, right? There's this partnership. Those who go, those who send. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm a sender, but let me challenge you. Have you ever considered whether you might be called to go? Have you ever thought of that? That God might be calling you to be a full-time missionary in some other part of the world? Would you at least pray about that and ask God if he might be leading you in that direction? Maybe you're thinking, well, I, you know, I have some interest in that, but I don't know where to begin. Here's where you begin. Here's the answer to that. You go on a short-term mission trip. That's how you start. Just try it out. Just get your toe in the water a little bit. See what it feels like. And there's two opportunities here for you uh, at New Life. One is a trip to St. Louis. I mean, we're not even asking you to go out of the country to begin with. This is a real baby step toward the possibility of entering into full-time missions. In the summer, we send a group to St. Louis to um, help with uh, VBS and construction projects, English as second language classes, uh, nursing home visitation in a very international, diverse area of the city. I've been on that trip myself, and it was uh, wonderful, and I would recommend it to you. Uh, that's July 4 through 10, this coming July. The other opportunity <clears throat> is a trip to El Salvador. 
Now, we've been going to Monterey, Mexico over the last few years, and that's been put on hold just temporarily. And so um, this summer, we are hoping, God willing, to send a trip to El Salvador. And actually, our high school students are the ones who uh, have expressed their desire to go to this part of the world. Now, this is not just a high school trip. You're all welcome to participate. Um, But July 11 through 18, we're going to send a group to El Salvador. If you want more information about either of these trips to St. Louis or El Salvador, we're having an informational meeting on March 5th at 6.30 p.m. here at the church. More information also on these little slips of paper at the welcome booth. You can grab one or both of these on your way out and consider that as the first step to take as you consider whether God might be sending you to go. Okay, second thing, there are also partners who send. Paul was the one who went, but then the Philippian church is the one who sent. Now, really the purpose of this message is to help us as a church understand better how we can care for those who have gone. Because we as a local congregation have a responsibility to support those who go. And I'm afraid that what often happens, and I confess, it happens in my own life, it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind thing sometimes. You know, the missionaries, they're they're not around here, they're not nearby, so it's easy to forget that they're there. You know, we don't just have missionaries, friends, we're in partnership with them. And so we need to keep them before our hearts and minds in a variety of ways. Here's a guy named Tom Steller who wrote this. He said, God is not glorified when our missionaries are simply a name on the back of a church bulletin or a line item in the budget. Senders, that's you and me, are fellow workers with the truth. To send in a manner worthy of God is a call to excellence in the support of missionaries. As senders, we're called to pursue excellence in how we support them. Is that a value for us as a church? Is there room for improvement for us as a church in the way we as senders support those who have gone? If you look at the very beginning of the passage, verse 14, here's here's one reason why this is very important. Paul says here, it was kind of you to share my trouble, he says. You see that? It was kind of you, church in Philippi, you who have supported me, to share in my trouble. That's part of what we're doing. When we partner with missionaries, we're helping to carry their burdens, and their burdens are significant. Now, when Paul talks about his trouble, I mean, it was pretty intense. As Acts chapter 16, the story is told. <laughs> Paul goes in the city, he's preaching the gospel. There's this little girl who's a, a fortune teller, and she keeps following Paul around, and she apparently has this evil spirit in her. And it's a little bit kind of funny, actually. Paul just kind of gets annoyed at this girl who just keeps kind of, you know, biting at his heels. And Paul just turns around and commands the spirit to come out of her, and the spirit comes out. And she can't fortune tell anymore. And she has a couple of uh, people who own her and are making a lot of money off of her. And they're infuriated because of what Paul just did. He just eliminated their means of income. And so they get Paul and his companions. They drag him out into the marketplace and they harass them and they put him in jail. And Paul goes to jail for preaching the gospel. And that's what he means by trouble. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. And that's an understatement, isn't it? I had some trouble. I was in jail. Now, the missionaries that we support 
with whom are in partnership. I, I don't know that they've ever been in jail or that that's a danger for them. I mean, it could be. But there are a number of other kinds of trouble that missionaries deal with. Loneliness, the struggle of learning the language, adjusting to a culture that is very different. One of the missionaries I talked to said, you know, we try to start church on time, but in this culture, everybody's a half an hour late. (laughs) They find that a little bit frustrating. There's financial needs, financial support that sometimes lags behind. There are the same kinds of personality conflicts that sometimes go on in our churches. Well, it goes on in their churches as well and on their ministry teams. There's spiritual attacks that they deal with in some areas in which these missionaries are serving. There's political strife. There's violence. Apparently, 65% of the world live in religiously restrictive areas, 65% in areas where the government makes it very difficult to preach the gospel. Uh, These missionaries, they have, many of them have have children, and so the same kinds of struggles that you parents deal with. With your children, they deal with in a strange and foreign culture. Their children want friends, their children go to school, and that creates sometimes trouble. Sometimes there's little fruit, There's very few conversions. Sometimes it seems like their efforts are just futile. And of course, sometimes there's persecution. Missionaries deal with a significant amount of trouble. That's why it's so important for us as ascending church to take seriously our responsibility to do this with excellence. Now, I actually contacted um, our missionaries and asked them to tell us as a church how we can better support, care for, and encourage them. I just wanted to hear it directly from them, and I'm going to share some of these comments here with you. As these missionaries deal with the troubles before them, how can we as Ascending Church help them? Here's some comments. I'm not going to identify who said what, but this person says prayer, number one. Prayer can seem like the easiest thing to give, but it really can be difficult to pray consistently. We serve in a hard and dark place, and prayer is vital in changing hearts. We need prayer for our own hearts and walks with the Lord as well. It's always encouraging to hear when people are praying for us specifically, even if it's just a quick email to say, hey, we prayed for you today. Care packages. It's really nice to know that we are remembered and thought of when we are so far away from people we love and things that are familiar. Packages full of notes or treats from America that we can't find here are a fun way to feel connected with our friends back in the States. Visitors. We would love to have visitors from New Life. We recognize that's a huge thing, but it would be so fun to introduce you to our world here. It would be encouraging for us and hopefully connect you more to the vision of what God's doing here. You know, that is a possibility. We don't, you don't have to go with an organized mission trip necessarily. Uh, if you have some time off and some finances, you can go and visit our missionaries. You can go to Tokyo or go to Australia or go to East Asia. If you're interested in that, you need to talk to Jessie. She's the one who has the closest contact with our missionaries. She can get you the information that you would need to contact these missionaries and find out how that might happen. Here's another comment. We feel, we do feel that we are involved in a partnership. 
And we would love to receive communication, letters, phone calls, etc., regularly from the good folks at New Life Presbyterian Church. We have a Voyage phone and can be reached directly at, he gives his number, I'm not going to announce that again. I think you can contact the office if you want the phone numbers of our missionaries, and you can call them. Uh, just five-minute call. Uh, he makes the point here that charges are normal U.S. long distance and not international. Uh, but that's probably not the case for all of these missionaries. Um, phone calls. Here's another comment. We're always so encouraged when we know people from home are praying for us. We recognize we desperately need prayer when it comes to the work we are doing, especially working with those from Muslim and Buddhist backgrounds. It really helps us when people let us know when and what they have prayed for us. It can be easy to feel disconnected from people back home and wonder if anyone is actually thinking of us. So, those are some comments. What I'm hearing there is that they want prayer badly, but they also want to know that we're praying for them. And in addition to that, they want to know specifically what we're praying for them. Uh, it, here's another way that you can encourage these missionaries. I know at the Sunday school session this morning that um, cards were made available for us to write so we could write notes to our missionaries. And so uh, those of you in Sunday school maybe got those. If you weren't in Sunday school, we have those cards available. Um, you can grab some of those at the Welcome Center, fill them out, get them back to, to us, and we'll mail them for you. Um, there are some directions for you as to how you should do that because there are some things to keep in mind. But there's a very easy way for you to encourage our missionaries through these notes. Well, one thing that I didn't mention here, and these missionaries did mention that money is important. I mean, I think almost every one of them said prayer is more important than money, but money is important. And it was important to Paul too, wasn't it? Look at verse 18. He says, I've received full payment from you and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, financial gifts, they're a fragrant offering. That's referring back to Old Testament sacrifices where it says in the Old Testament that when the people of God would offer up these sacrifices, this sweet aroma would go up into God's nostrils and he would be pleased. And what Paul is saying here is that when you give financially to missionaries, it's the same kind of thing. It pleases God's heart. It makes him happy. It makes him glad. But he goes on here in verse 18, not only a fragrant offering, but a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's think of that word for just a moment, a sacrifice. Paul is talking about gifts that he received from this sending, supporting church that for them were a sacrifice. He doesn't say that they're generous gifts. Maybe they were. More importantly for him, they were sacrificial. There's a difference between generous giving and sacrificial giving. There's a difference. Let's say a missionary receives a check for $5,000. That missionary looks at that gift and thinks, man, that is, that is really generous. But let's say that missionary finds out that the person who gave that actually has a net worth of $500 million. Now the missionary would say, that, that's still a generous gift, and it's still greatly appreciated. But I'm not sure it was that sacrificial. Then let's say a missionary gets a gift for $100. 
And the missionary looks at that and says, well, you know, that'll get us to the end of the month. You know, it's really not that generous. But then the missionary finds out that the person who gave it rides the bus to work because he can't afford a car. Or it comes from a, a woman who hasn't been to a movie in five years because she can't afford it. Then the missionary looks at that check and says, well, it might not be that generous, but it was sacrificial. That's the kind of giving that Paul has in mind, and, and that's how I want to challenge us as a congregation about your giving. You're giving to the church. You're giving to missionaries. Is it sacrificial? Is it not just generous, but is it sacrificial? To commit ourselves to sacrificial giving is one way that we can pursue excellence in sending and gain some ground in reaching the billions of people who've never heard the gospel. Friends, I've got to stop. Um, just remember, God, God is a missionary God, friends. We're talking about sending. God is a sending God, isn't he? It's not just that he sent us, that he sent missionaries. He sent his son. Think of that. In the very nature of God is a God who sends. It's wrapped up in the very nature of who he is, the Father sending the Son to save sinners and at great sacrifice to himself. Let's partner. Let's go. Let's send. Because there is a humanity, a humanity too precious to neglect. There is a remedy too wonderful to withhold. There is a Christ too glorious to hide. And there is an adventure too thrilling to miss as we take the gospel to the nations. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for entrusting us with the most exciting thing that we can do with our lives. Take the gospel to the world. And thank you for the guarantee in your word that Jesus wins. The king upon the throne will never fail. And I pray that that knowledge would give us the encouragement we need to continue to send him and to continue to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.